Welcome to The Breakdown with Brock Corbin Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp. And I'm Becky Sher. We're back with another bonus episode, once again on the topic of marijuana. Following our recent episode with Curtis Hanna and Lakeville Mayor Luke Hellyer, we were left with some questions surrounding marijuana when it came to guns and driving. Thomas Gallagher listened to the episode and we reached out to him on Twitter. Thomas is a criminal defense attorney is helping provide some clarity on these topics and more. We're excited to continue the conversation and welcome Thomas to the show for this bonus episode on marijuana and the law. We are excited today to be joined by Thomas Gallagher, who is a criminal defense attorney in Minnesota. He is also very versed in marijuana law in this state. He's an advocate for marijuana laws and legalization of marijuana. You serve on the board of Minnesota Normal. This conversation came from, I saw you on social media in response to an episode that we had with Curtis Hanna, we've had a couple times, and Luke Hellyer, who is the mayor of Lakeville. We had an episode a couple weeks back talking about the rollout of marijuana legalization, and we thought you'd be a great expert to come in and talk with us, maybe answer some questions and provide some insight for our listeners in what's the realities of marijuana legalization in the state and provide some insight and perspective on marijuana and driving and marijuana and guns. They were the two big subjects. So this is a big red meat episode. So I appreciate you joining us, Thomas. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Let me start off with give our listeners a little bit of your background and your thoughts on where we are now as a state in terms of marijuana legalization and what are the impacts that Minnesotans are going to see about it? Um, well, I've been an attorney for I think about 35 years uh, in Minnesota doing criminal defense work mostly um, during that time. And uh Almost as long I've been advocating for the legalization of marijuana, in part because um, when I was younger, I used it myself. I don't anymore, which kind of surprises a lot of people. But um, and also perhaps more so because I've had clients who've been charged with marijuana crimes. A few of them even went to prison for it, believe it or not, um, which is very disappointing. So I just felt like. This, this has to change. We've got to find a better way than locking people up. You know, if I don't like the smell or it bothers me, that's understandable. But is it really worth locking somebody up in prison, orphaning a child who's going to grow up without a mother or a father and so forth? So I thought, you know what, I should probably do something about it. And uh, in 2011, I joined with some others to found the Minnesota chapter of normal, Minnesota normal. And that's what we've been working on ever since. I mean, the the law right now, the 2003 cannabis reform law was a huge step in the right direction from our point of view. Um, But there's still quite a ways to go. And there's some gaps that probably need to get filled in. Some, um, Some people complain about those things. I personally don't complain about them because... You can't expect major legislation to be perfect the first year. Absolutely. And I I don't want to, I never want to speak for Becky, but I want to be fair and kind of designating kind of our positions on this. I would describe myself as, is, um, I'm always going to be concerned about the public safety component of some of this stuff. That's my concern immediately. 
as I disclosed to you as in the email and disclosed to our listeners at a DWI in 2013, I've been a volunteer with Minnesotans for safe driving. I'm also realist. I understand that the world is changing around us and we got to adapt or die in some instances. I'm a parent. My kids are going to be driving soon. I, so public safety is always going to be a concern of mine. And so I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective. Becky, I think is let her describe her position on marijuana legalization. Absolutely. Um, I, I do support the legalization of marijuana. I, you know, believe that there is a lot of Benefits this can get, you know, tax system, certainly some benefits there, the legal uh, criminal justice system. There are certainly, um, you know, some hard facts of of how it's impacted families, individuals, you know, over the decades here in the state and across the country. And so um, I, that's something I, I am looking forward to um, seeing change. And I think that one of our frustrations with this is that um, it because it seemed to be a policy that uh, Democrats and the majorities at the legislature wanted so badly to get passed, it it, it appears from from our viewing of things that um, even even as a supporter that it was maybe done a little a little there's a little willy nilly here that there's needs to be a without having a commissioner in place, without having, you know, an agency ready, it was rolled out. We've already seen some some different confusion behind what the policy actually means for minors, for people who are growing, selling, giving it away for different folks um, throughout the state. And so we know that this is going to be an ongoing conversation. And like you mentioned, not not necessarily perfect. And, and some of this stuff will be continued to work out. But as uh, Michael mentioned, you know, you being on really came from a previous conversation we had and and a couple of the issues that we talked about in that. Um, I think if it's okay with you, we can start with marijuana use as it pertains to legal gun owners and and how um, gun use, guns being in possession, guns being in, you know, proximity to someone smoking or using um, marijuana and and what that looks like and if you have anything to to share on that. Absolutely. Um, well, I think the most, probably the most, uh, the first thing people notice about guns and marijuana right now is that it's legal to use marijuana under Minnesota state law, but under federal law, it's not legal to use marijuana. Um, and so another another point Similar to that would be that under federal law, they're talking about rescheduling marijuana, cannabis, and THC out of Schedule 1 into either a lower schedule or to, to, to deschedule it from the Controlled Substances Act completely. Minnesota has already, in 2023, as part of the bill we just saw pass, has reduced marijuana, THC, and cannabis from Schedule 1 down to Schedule 3. Advocates like me would like to see it descheduled completely so it's no longer a controlled substance, like uh, tobacco and alcohol are not controlled substances. Therefore, why should cannabis be, since it is safer than both of those things? Um, but nevertheless, sometimes change takes time. Um, and on the federal level, they're talking about rescheduling it uh, or descheduling it, possibly. Um, so with guns, um, it's, a, it's, a, 
It's an example of what I have called over the years a transitional issue. And what I mean by using that term is that it's an issue that maybe in 10 or 20 years will no longer be an issue, hopefully. But in the meantime, as we transition from prohibition to um, a legal environment, along the way, there are going to be some issues that come up that are important for a while, but maybe they won't be important in the long run. I think that's one of them. So, um, but for now, if you're a legal gun owner, it's probably a good idea not to be a uh, have your name on a state department, Minnesota Department of Health medical cannabis list as an approved medical cannabis patient, because the federal government or some other prosecutor perhaps potentially could use that as, well, I think it would have to be a federal prosecutor, but they could use that as a um, admission of guilt that you are a current illegal controlled substance user under federal law. So if that's probably the biggest takeaway or headline for kind of the average person out there is probably don't want to be a medical cannabis patient if you're, uh, uh, if you like guns. I am, I'm a, I have a carry permit in this state. So the question I have for you is if independent of medical cannabis or being on that list would, and again, you're an attorney and you may have played one on TV, but I'm not trying, I'm trying to just frame it up a little bit so I can figure this out. Would it be legal for me as a conceal and carry permit holder in this state to use recreational marijuana? Well, it would be legal under state law. Correct. But under federal law, it it may not be. So if we kind of drill down a little bit deeper from the surface level that we kind of already did, um, the next layer down, the ATF put out press releases around August 1st saying, ah, oh, watch out. You may have seen those um, saying, watch out if you're a gun owner. Uh, Marijuana is not legal under federal law, so we're going to get you something to that effect. Um, or we might come after you. So watch out. And um, then, you know, I personally, my reaction was, didn't the ATF see all the federal court decisions saying that that was unconstitutional under Bruin, which is uh, New York pistol and rifle versus Bruin? I think it's a 2022 U.S. Supreme Court case. There's a lot of litigation around the country um, where people are asking courts to strike down uh, many gun-related laws as violations of the Second Amendment, and that's one of them. So some, I believe, two or three federal circuit courts now have said that um, that that's unconstitutional to say that um, that you lose your Second Amendment rights because you're a current user of illegal controlled substances. But that's kind of a great area. And I I don't think anybody I don't I don't recommend anybody should volunteer to be a test case because most people don't have time or money to, um, you know, play Jesus on the cross and, and die for the sins of everybody else. Becky has said that she's fully supportive of marijuana legalization with some of the caveats on the rollout that I share. I would say that I'm undecided on it. And I think a lot of it will be shaped by this interview and what I learned. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on. But if I understand correctly, so it's legal under state law, but practically speaking, 
if I were as a licensed conceal and carry permit holder to use recreational marijuana, there is a possibility that I could get in trouble on the federal side. But in reality, wouldn't I have to do something to get on the radar screen of the feds in order to be prosecuted for it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for instance, I think if you're Hunter Biden, you might have a problem. If you're taking videos of yourself, yeah. you know, using illegal drugs. There is a legal dispensary up in Red Lake. I could, in theory, I could drive up there, buy it, drive back to my house. And is there a way in which, is there a database? I mean, as, a, as an advocate of the Second Amendment, one of the things that advocates of the Second Amendment are always concerned about are databases and their names being checked with the log. I'm not trying to give people a pathway or a license to, to do what I'm about to do, but I just wanted to have some clarity. There would be nothing that would prevent me from leaving my house in Egan as a conceal and carry holder, driving up to Red Lake, buying recreational marijuana, driving home and using it, other than the fact that it's legal on the state level, it's not on the federal level. So absent me getting on the radar screen of federal law enforcement agencies, I'm likely going to get away with it. Is what you're is what you're saying? Um, yeah, it's hard for it's hard to say that out loud. But I mean, I think what I'm part of a, a national uh, email listserv for decades for the what we call the Normal Legal Committee, which are lawyers who support normal around the country, and it's been interesting because. I get dialogue from lawyers in other states where it's been legal for much longer. Mm -hmm. And what they have talked about when it comes to gun rights is what I think they characterize, or at least I would characterize as a privacy approach. Correct. Which means to maintain your privacy and to right. not provide evidence to the government that you might possibly be breaking the law yep. or subject to some interpretation. Um, so that's why the, uh, or that I think, the medical cannabis registry, if you want to call it that, or at least mm -hmm. the government list of people that are authorized for medical cannabis, um, that's a that's a handy list for the government to get a hold of um, evidence that hey, this person is um, fed using federally illegal. But if if you get uh, like a small amount of marijuana ticket from two years ago, uh, that would be proof or evidence that you know you might be an unlawful user of marijuana, the federal law says a current illegal controlled substance user. So what does the word current mean? There's a lot of discussion about that. Well, I quit midnight last night. I quit. Yesterday I was smoking it up, you know? So when you fill out that form at the gun store, are you a current user of illegal controlled substances? You might think, well, not today. I'm not. Yep. Um, but but do, you, do you think it's more problematic than for the medical marijuana users, because there is that database of saying, basically, I am using or I, you know, I yeah. am using. So that's more problematic than just recreational in, in this circumstance. Yeah, it is. But only because it's basically it's it's a privacy issue or you could say it's an evidentiary issue or you're providing evidence to the government without the evidence. It's kind of like the old question. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a yeah. sound? You know, um, that question fascinated me for years. It still does. But because if you if you have if you know the truth and you go to court and you don't have evidence, it doesn't do you any good. You have to have evidence, you know. So um, 
One thing I should mention, since uh, Michael talked about carry permit, I have seen or I've seen and heard of cases where the sheriff will deny a carry permit because somebody, you know, got a small amount of marijuana ticket a year ago. And they have different law enforcement agencies have, I've heard of different criteria, like the last 12 months is the most common one I've heard. So if you've gotten a ticket in the last year, they're going to decide that you're a current user. Like, oh, really? Like, because a year ago I got caught with it. What it, a year, a lot can change in a year, right? Um, just go to an AA meeting. A lot of people have been sober for, you know, a week. So, um, but anyway, they need evidence. So that's kind of, so I think that's a transitional issue. Hopefully it won't matter in 10 years or something, but for now, privacy is the, is a good, a good approach. And when you think about it, um, you know, if you think about juris, legal jurisdiction, over your territory, over your home, your castle doctrine, your privacy and your body. Um, all these things are kind of the same because you're saying, look, uh, government or maybe employer, you're overreaching right now. You don't have the right to reach into my private life and tell me what to do. I mean, uh, who are who are you to do that? You're no better than me. You mean, I'm a human being, you're a human being. What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Um, so... I have my privacy. What I do in the privacy of my bedroom with my wife or something, that's our business. It's not your business. And the same thing with a lot of things, with guns or marijuana or you name it. Do you think that the ATF bulletin was meant to show, to flex a little muscle, to show that, hey, we're still here, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a warning shot, to just to say, look, this is still federally, it's still considered a controlled substance federally, gun owners be careful? Yeah, I think it, I think that's probably right. And I think, it, I mean, I'm speculating. I mean, we're kind of guessing here, but um, I would also guess that they might have some feelings about the ongoing federal litigation that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Is there anything that you see moving aside from litigation? Is there anything on the federal level that you think will clarify this issue? Aside from litigation, is there any attempts to uh, any active legislation related to this? I mean, I'm less I'm less deep into that uh, because I, I focus and we focus more at the state level. But yep. we are I do follow the the news about the federal, and I think there's the Safe Banking Act is pretty important right now, and a lot of people may not know that. Even in legal states where marijuana is legal, I think we have 23 or 24 states now. Um, and so you, you can go buy it at the store in most of these states. Minnesota, not yet, except a reservation. But um, you go to the store and um, they have to take cash. They can't, they can't do banking from the cannabis store. That's crazy. I mean, what if you had a liquor store and they, had to, they could only use cash? Um, Sometimes they get targeted for robberies and violent crime, and then they have to have security for, because of this. And it's crazy. So the Safe Banking Act, the name SAFE, it's one of those acronyms that they have that I forget what it stands for, but um, it's, it's sort of trying to signal that it would be safer if we allowed the cannabis industry to actually use banks and credit cards and things. I have to ask. That's one thing. So I think, yeah. If I may, just to follow up on that. So the Red Lake, transactions on Red Lake 
related to legal marijuana recreational use in the state. That is a cash only a transaction. You know, I don't know that for a fact. I haven't been there, but that's my understanding that that's the way it's been. I'm not sure if maybe Indian reservations have a special situation, but I doubt it. I don't know for a fact, though. Interesting. Becky, your thoughts? I think that's very interesting. I mean, I think certainly has some some cert it certainly seems as though that would have some issues and and so hopefully that is something that if if that's the case is ironed out before um more permits are given and and more we see popping up because it does seem like it would be um ripe for for criminal activity and and robbery and things of that if there's mass amounts um because again this is something also that I think I haven't been up to Red Lake, so I don't know the cost of this, but I would argue it's more expensive than an average case of beer, um, you know, for some of the the items. So um, there would be large amounts of money that would be taken in. So I have to imagine that that would be ironed out. One question I did have, um, and don't mean to put you guys on the spot, that, but this is something that I read this morning from the Star Tribune, was that there is some questions, and I and I don't know if you've seen this, so don't feel like you need to have all of the answers, but I'm just curious for for your input on this. Um, there was a some it says some advocates in Minnesota's cannabis community argue that a little known provision in the state constitution allows them to sell the marijuana they grow. There's a provision that says any person may sell or peddle the products of the farm or garden occupied and cultivated by him without obtaining a license thereafter. So some advocates are are waiting for the or would like the legislature to to weigh in. Um, Senator Lindsey Port, who is the author of this, said that that is not the intention. They would be surprised if that happened. Um, but uh, interested again, this is from my perspective again, what we've seen of of some of the frustration with maybe not being a well-rounded, fully thought out, fleshed out piece of legislation that answers all of these. I, I have to imagine this is something that had more time been given that that likely would have been brought up and and clarified to make sure that there wasn't this confusion um, of the author's intent. Um, but do either of you, I'm not sure if you've seen that or if you have any any, insight on on your thoughts of it. Yes, I have seen that. In fact, we Minnesota Normal, we did a press event earlier this month where that was one of our main things we were talking about. Um, I wrote an article on Minnesota Normal's blog about this, talking about the two, the two main cases, um, the fewest uh, Minnesota Supreme Court cases interpreting this Minnesota constitutional right to sell the products of your farm or garden, provided that you live there, live on that place, and you're an individual, I believe is implied with that as well. But um, I do believe it, it's been, it is a little bit of a surprise. It's one of those things we didn't really expect, but uh, we noticed it like, wow, look at that. Um, I don't think it's gonna be um, a huge thing. So. In other states, they do allow people who grow marijuana in their home to bring it to a dispensary. And I think they do this because they don't want it to go into the black market. So people bring it to the dispensary and the dispensary will buy it, but they will buy it at a lower price than from their commercial growers because the commercial growers have to get like the THC level tested and things like that. Um, The home growers do not have to do that. Um, Therefore, they get a lower price. 
And then the dispensaries, they will sell it to people who come in who maybe they're older people, disabled people on Social Security or disability of some kind, and they can't afford the, the expensive cannabis, so they buy the, the home grow cannabis from the dispensary. So I think it's a very smart thing to do to um, take it out of the illegal market and uh, also to serve a need for low-income people who maybe they're sick. You've got somebody with cancer, they lost their job. And at least cannabis, like you said earlier, it can be expensive sometimes. But this is a, a way to make it more affordable to people who may need it, who don't have as much money. And but it's it's definitely a, a it's a small scale situation. It's not a it's not a big issue in terms of volume because, for example, in Minnesota, you can grow four plants, and you're not going to get a tremendous amount from from that. Were you surprised at Senator Port's response saying that that they didn't intend that to be part of the legislation, and she doesn't expect that change to allow home um, growing selling to be to be allowed as part of the law? Um, I didn't see that comment by her, but um, it doesn't surprise me that they didn't expect it. I mean, I don't think I wasn't really I, did, I was a little bit surprised myself, um, even though I was well aware of the constitutional amendment. But what the, the constitutional amendment has been brought up over the years with the Minnesota Supreme Court. But what changed was that um, it's now legal to grow marijuana in your home. Um, and you don't have any um, testing requirements, et cetera. So um, the, the constitutional amendment says from 100 years ago, or a little bit more than 100 years ago, 120 years ago, it says that you don't need a license. So, the, so some previous court decisions said, well, if you don't need a license, but you, but you need to do other things other than a license, you may not be able to do it still. In Minnesota with home grow, there's nothing. There's literally, literally nothing you are required to do to grow at home. Um, you can grow four plants. If you got to be 21 years old, it's got to be uh, at your residence where uh, 21 or older adult lives. And if two people live there, you know, you're still stuck with four plants. It's not per person. It's just per residence. So there, those are the limitations. But the only uh, other limitation to selling is a license. So the Constitution, literally, it's spot on. It's 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 on all four square points here. You know, I don't see how you can get around it. But um, we at Minnesota Normal have been suggesting that the Minnesota legislature re visit this issue and build out a statutory uh, structure for it so that law enforcement doesn't have to go out and arrest people. And so that, you know, innocent people who just normal people don't get caught up and snagged in the criminal justice system. That's fascinating. I appreciate you having so much insight on that. So thank you for sharing. To break it down a little bit, it is today I could grow four plants at my property. Well, the loss is eight plants, but only four can be flowering okay. or mature. And so I usually only talk about four because the immature plants are sort of, I don't know how much they really matter. But but the issue would be, as we learned in the episode with Curtis, you can gift a certain amount of marijuana right now outside of, so I could gift it to someone. I can't sell it. But the issue 
the issue that Becky raised that there is a belief and expect there's a belief and understanding and some inconsistency apparently in the law versus the Constitution as to whether someone can sell a marijuana just like they would sell tomatoes or strawberries or something else. Correct. Right. And some other states have a have a farmer's market law where you can sell cannabis in a farmer's market type situation. And you may have seen some media reports. Mm -hmm. They're easy to find talking and showing pictures of that. I have a question. Um, So I lived in Washington, D.C. for a number of years, and I was there shortly after or or while um, it was decriminalized out there. Um, We saw a lot of unique ways that businesses tried to get around this. You could buy a $50 smoothie and be gifted, you know, X amount of of marijuana or or different things of that sort. Or you could give a donation um, to an organization in return for some product. Do you expect or, or do you have, you know, have, have you seen anything in other states with that have been legalized or decriminalized? And, and is that something that, you know, some of these, some small businesses might try to, or individuals might be a little, try to get a little cute with how they go about things? My, I, my suggestion would be not to do anything <laughs> like that because um, it's really a question of proof or evidence. And, um, you know, law enforcement is probably not going to buy into that. And I don't, uh, prosecutors, I don't think they will either. Perhaps it might give you a little bit of a, a hope or a prayer with a jury, but... I don't know too many people who want to volunteer to be a criminal defendant. I would not suggest doing that. <laughs> I want to pivot a bit to driving. This has been the other issue that's come up that a lot of people have questions on. I have followed this particular aspect relatively close, closely. The b- b- chief of police of Bloomington was on Almanac this past week, and he made some comments about how from a, his perspective on law enforcement, how they're able, how they are going to be able to address this. And with, I don't think I'm describing it inaccurately, but he seemed to imply that this was in essence, a kind of wild west situation that law enforcement didn't have the resources to deal with impaired driving from using marijuana, didn't have the resources to deal with it. He was critical of the role that law enforcement had at the legislature related to the passing of this marijuana legalization. I'd like to give you the floor here to offer your perspective on driving while after using marijuana, in the process of using marijuana, what are the laws related to that, and how we deal also with some of those enforcement issues. But it does, why don't you take it from there? So I was on Almanac the week before he was, but I think they only give us five minutes, which is actually kind of a long, long for TV news yeah. um, coverage. But um, but still, five minutes isn't enough to do more than scratch the surface. I have written some articles on my blog and my website t- doing a deeper, probably a deep, deep dive into this topic where I cite numerous, probably dozens of scientific studies Uh, Many of them coming from the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, which we often abbreviate as NHTSA. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the federal agency that does research and funds law for law enforcement and funds law enforcement 
for example, saturation patrol. Sometimes I've known cops that have made as much money on overtime as they did on their base salary. And a lot of, probably most, if not all of that is coming from NHTSA grants doing like 4th of July, New Year's Eve saturation for DWI or other, you know, click it or ticket, that kind of thing. So NHTSA is, um, I like them because I'm a criminal defense attorney and people might suspect I have an agenda and um, maybe I do, but I don't, I don't think I do. I think my agenda is just to be truthful and neutral, um, but it does help me a lot when I cite the law enforcement agency and all of their studies. For example, they have something, many of their studies that they cite talk about something called odds ratios of a car crash or a fatal car crash. And they abbreviate that OR with capital O, capital R. So the OR for um, for alcohol from 0.05 to 0.08, if I remember correctly, it's like 600% higher than a normal person who hasn't had anything to drink. Um, and then for a pregnant woman or uh, a driver with two or more passengers in the car, there's a it's a basically a 42% increase in the risk of a crash overall, statistically, according to these studies. And then for cannabis, it's between 5% and I think 40% increased risk of uh, crash, car crash. So... Um, what that means is that the risk, the overall risk of a car crash because after somebody's consumed cannabis is lower than it is for people who have two passengers, two or more passengers in their car. Um, and you compare that to 0.05 through 0.08 alcohol, 600% increase. So alcohol is far more impairing than cannabis on average. Now, Unfortunately, for legalization advocates like myself, I wish I could say that cannabis had no potential to impair driving at all, but we really can't say that because it does impair people on average to some extent. However, there are also have been studies have shown that have shown on controlled driving courses, they, they had they've had three groups: an, an alcohol group, a control group, and a marijuana cannabis group. And in some of these studies, the cannabis group performed better on the driving course than the control group. And the alcohol group, obviously, of course, performed worse. But so sometimes cannabis has been a performance enhancing drug when it comes to driving. The problem is that it's, ver it's variable by the individual. So, for example, people who have used a lot of cannabis for a long time, it's very, it's less likely that it would have any effect on them because they're very much used to it. Kind of like, you know, if you know, if, like an older family member who's taking some kind of medication on the bottle, that says, do not drive unless, you know, you've been take you've used, you're uh, used to this medication. Um, and then people do get used to it and they are okay to drive. But somebody who's taking that medication the first time, they may not be safe to drive. Um, so newer users, another issue I think is edibles versus uh, inhaled marijuana. Mm -hmm. Edibles are really, it's kind of unfortunate that Minnesota legalized edibles before um, the plant form, because I think smoking marijuana or vaping it is better for people who are not used to it um, than edibles, because with edibles, it's kind of like uh, with, if you compare it to alcohol, like 
you hear about these cases on the 21st birthday, the kid goes to the bar, mm -hmm. takes 21 shots of tequila, like, and then Ooh. they drop dead, you know, and everybody cries at the funeral from an alcohol overdose. And by the way, nobody can overdose on marijuana, which is it's marijuana is safer than alcohol because there's no overdose possibility. But um, when you consume something, when you ingest it, when you drink it or eat it, it's going to sit in your stomach and your digestive tract, and it's going to gradually be metabolized into your bloodstream. But if you inhale it, if you smoke it or vape it, it's instant. It goes right into your blood. And then if you look at the charts showing um, THC in the blood, for inhaled marijuana, the, the second you exhale that last uh, puff of marijuana, your uh, THC level starts dropping 80 to 90% per hour. So you could be really, really high on marijuana, and then an hour later, almost nothing. So that's, that's interesting because with alcohol, it, it, you know, I've had clients who have been busted for DWI on their way to work the next morning after they tied one on a little too much the night before. Yeah, I've heard that before. Let me ask you just for my sake, and since it's a matter of public record, I don't mind diving into it. When I had my DWI, was 0 .10, 0.10, which is over the legal limit. In order to understand the impairment aspect of it, is it 0 .10 even remotely in the same universe of what could happen if you smoked marijuana? Or took an edible. And by the way, I'm going to sound like a 90-year-old person right now and so uncool as I talk about this. I'm just going to preface to anyone listening that I'm going to be as square as you can be because I just don't have an understanding <laughs> and appreciation of it. But is it possible for someone to be impaired through marijuana or edibles or anything to the same level of 0.10? I guess the first thing to say in response would to be to point out, as NHTSA points out, that there is no correlation between blood THC level and impairment. Great point. So, yeah, you could be you could have a very high THC level and not be impaired at all, probably perhaps because you've been using marijuana every day for five years or something, you know, um, but there's no correlation between impairment and and dry and and THC and impairment, but with alcohol, there's a very strong correlation. So if you're 0.10, you're probably somewhat impaired. Um, but with marijuana, you can't say that. Like a certain blood level, it doesn't mean anything in terms of impairment. Um, but you know, I think you could be. Unfortunately, for advocates like me. It you definitely can be impaired by marijuana when it comes to driving. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, sometimes people like politics to be black and white and it's always this or it's always that. And, you know, we love ourselves and we hate you other people or something. But, you yeah. know, in this case, we just cannot say that uh, marijuana cannot impair you. But we can say that it, it impairs you less than driving with two passengers in your car. So at least we got that. And I think it's also fair to point out that, and I knew this coming into the interview, but it's a great point that you made. Alcohol is far more of a factor in driving-related crashes than any other substance that's out there. And it's really not the same universe in terms of impairment and the ability to cloud judgment. 
it's but it's the only universe that I know. So I wanted I know it's not an apples to oranges comparison, but just in the universe that I've since I've been volunteering for the last 10 years, it's just a language that I use. But as I've come to realize both from talking with you today and other conversations, it's just not the same universe. It's just not the same thing. I think one thing that's pretty interesting along those lines is many of us, including me, would could observe that um, alcohol reduces your resistance to impulse control. It reduces your impulse control. So it makes people more impulsive in their behavior or conduct. Marijuana ha many times has the opposite effect. It makes people more cautious. So the joke is, you know, um, you know, the, the person drove up to the stop sign and they were high on marijuana and they were waiting for the stop sign to turn green or something. You know, they're 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 hesitating. They're they're going slower than the speed limit. They're you know, they're not taking chances. But people who've been drinking, they're going to take more chances. So to some extent, that that could be that has some truth in it. Maybe um, that's pretty anecdotal at this point. But that's what people are saying a lot. Thomas, you've been incredibly patient with your time. We want to give you a, is there a subject or a, a point related to this conversation that we didn't get to that you think would be beneficial for our listeners to know? Um, well, I mean, I would, Minnesota Normal, we are asking the legislature to repeal all criminal penalties for possession of marijuana. And we believe that um, because there are no criminal penalties for possession of beer, wine, or spirits, that there should not be any possession limits for cannabis. Like the two ounces in public or the two pounds in your home, just get rid of those. Because until we do, there's going to be an, under, an illegal market. And I think we should also take a good hard look at this idea that home growers could go to a dispensary, and like in other states they do, and sell their excess product to make sure or to help make sure that it doesn't hit the illegal market. Because we want to get rid of the illegal market. We want to take the money away from the, the gangs. We want to get rid of the, the violence related to gang activity. So we want to want to starve the illegal market and help people be free and get rid of violent crime. You're at, you're at, I couldn't agree with you more. Where can people read your articles? follow you on social media to, to learn more about your marijuana legalization, the law, and the subjects that you've covered here today. It's just incredibly fascinating. You're a wealth of information. But I want to make sure we put in a plug for where people can find out more about what you're all about and what you're doing. So my website is gallagherdefense.com. The tricky part is spelling Gallagher, but I guess I'm not going to do that again. But And then... Um, Social media, Gal Tom Gallagher Law on Twitter and uh, Gallagher Criminal Defense on Facebook. And also, I, I also um, publish on Minnesota Normal's blog as well, some articles there. We will make sure to link to all of those when we promote this episode. Thomas, I want to thank you for being here today. You were extra generous with your time. We kept you on a lot longer because you were such a resource. It's also good on a personal level. If you guys know anything about me, it's always good for me to know a criminal defense attorney. You never know when it comes to me. It's always good for me to know as many criminal defense attorneys. I have a lawyer in the family, which is good. One of my sisters is a lawyer. But hey, it's always good for my Rolodex to know more criminal defense attorneys. So I hope this was a fun experience and that you'll consider coming back on a variety of subjects 
Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We want to thank you for listening to this bonus episode of The Breakdown with Broadcom and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. The Breakdown with Broadcom and Becky will return this week with a new episode. Thank you again for joining us.